In 2013, a crater on the planet Mercury was named after which early 20th century master of horror? Welcome to Trivial Context, where we give trivia some context. I'm Sean Riley with my life trivia partner. Brooke Riley. I have a guess. I'm thinking Kubrick? Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick? I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Okay. I'm going to say H.P. Lovecraft, but I think this century might be wrong. Early 20th century? Oh, it's not Kubrick. H.P. Lovecraft. So close to the sun, the Lovecraft crater is probably a pretty horrifying place to visit. Oh. Oh, yeah. Very good job, Brooke. So we each researched today's topic based on one of the six trivia categories randomly chosen last week. So this week we're doing art and literature, yeah, which and we did two weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> we just did. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Uh, and because you answered the question correctly, you I can go, to go first. first. All right. I'm actually pretty excited. This is a very late in the week episode. We have had a very busy week, but we really wanted to get it done. You chose your topic, researched, and wrote everything a few hours this ago. afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> After working 10 hours. Yeah. And, and I have to be back at work in eight hours. Yes, but we love doing it. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We have a lot of fun. Yeah, and I'm not much better. Like, I did my research and chose my topic a few days ago, but I wrote everything today, so. To be fair, I've been thinking about my topic, what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I just felt like I wanted it to be different mm-hmm. than what we did two weeks ago, and all my ideas were, like, very similar. Gotcha. But not this one. Okay, well, I'm on the edge of my seat. What is the only book in Latin to ever become a New York Times bestseller? That is a good question. The answer to which... It's a hard question. Yeah, I'm be sh- shocked if you get it. I'm struggling to think of anything ever in Latin that I would like know of. Okay, do you want a hint? Please. Okay, I will read you the title in Latin. and see. It's a translation. Yeah. Okay. Winnie il Pooh. <laughs> I'm lost. I have no idea. It is Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, that is very interesting. Okay. I know. Yeah. Christopher Robin. Yeah. Is another character. From that. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. My favorite was Tigger. My favorite is also Tigger. I have a Tigger mug. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I have no paraphernalia, but um, tigers are my favorite animal. That's true. Growing up. I didn't really watch cartoons or animations. I watched Animal Planet, National Geographic, and Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh was the exception. I it holds like such a special place in my heart. Yeah. So I am really excited. I, I'm that. excited. Yeah, please. So the translation was by Alexander Leonard in 1958. Winnie the Pooh stories have been translated into over 50 languages. Name them. No. Okay. <laughs> the beloved stories of Winnie the Pooh were the creation of author and essayist A.A. Aaron. A.A. Milne, a veteran of World War One, struggling with PTSD, he turned his son's stuffed animals into fantastical stories. There was a bear, a donkey, a tiger, and a kangaroo with a joey. No pig or owl. And a pig. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the rabbit and owl. Were from his own imagination. So those are characters he added himself. The sun. No. A.A. The... Milne. Yeah. Okay. So everything else was... There was like a stuffed animal. But not those two. So he served on the Western Front during World War One, 
and he was injured in the first battle sometime in 1916. Like I mentioned earlier, he, he kind of struggled with, they called it shell shock back then, but we now refer to it as PTSD. Yeah. So he moved his family from London to the countryside, um, and they called it Crutchford Farm. He only had one child, Christopher Robin. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he went by the nickname Billy Moon. And I have no idea how you go from Christopher Robin to Billy Moon, but that is just... Maybe that was his favorite form of insult, the moon. Mm. That's probably my favorite form. <laughs> his, his real name is Christopher Robin. So they spent a lot of time outside exploring, and then at night he would tell them these stories of his stuffed animals also exploring what we know as the Hundred Acre Woods. I'm interested, like, where does the Latin come in from? You said it was translated from Latin? Was it, like, an original no, no, transcript? No. The Latin translation. So Winnie the Pooh's written in English. They translated it into Latin. And, and even the, that the Latin one. version was a New York Times bestseller. Oh, well, I would never have gotten Winnie the Pooh because <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't know it was that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it's kind of like a... A trickish question. Yeah, but... That's I okay. When I saw that, I was shocked, and I was like, yep, that's going to be my question, because it's so good. interesting. I just realized I forgot my question, so I'll come up with it on the spot. Nice. It'll be really good. His career before he served in the military was, he was an essayist, humorist, and editor at Punch, and <laughs> he was also a pretty successful playwright. One of his works was even adapted into a silent picture in 1921 called Mr. Pym Passes By. Hmm. So he's like a talented... Yeah, loves alliteration. <laughs> yes, but a talented guy. So originally, Billy's little bear was known as Edward. Oh, Edvard Munch? Nope. I think it was actually Mr. Edward. Oh, I'm so sorry. But he changed the name after visiting a new bear at the London Zoo named Winnie. The poo... And this is a quote... The poo came from 1924 poetry book, When We Were Very Young, that Milne wrote, and he said that tells of his son explaining how he would feed a swan in the morning, but if the bird wouldn't come, the boy would say poo to show how little he wanted him to come, which didn't make sense to me, but that's apparently where the poo came from. Okay. So Winnie the poo. And Winnie the bear that inspired... The name change actually has a very interesting story that oh. I'm going to kind of go on a tangent. Please. On. His story also begins with a soldier in World War One. Mm. In 1914, a 27 year old Winnipeg native, Lieutenant Harry Colburn, on a stop with his troop in Ontario, came across a trapper who was selling a black bear cub. The trapper had killed its mother, but couldn't do the same to the cub. He was trying to sell it for twenty dollars. Lieutenant Colborne just so happened to have studied veterinarian surgery and loved animals. Wow. He purchased the bear, named it Winnipeg, after his hometown. He trained the cub and rewarded it with a mixture of corn syrup and condensed milk. Basically treated it like a dog. Yeah. Taught him how to do, taught her how to do tricks, and the bear would follow him around like a puppy posed for pictures with the fellow soldiers and just be kind of, kind of became the mascot for That's the regiment. That's really cool. Yeah. A few months later, he was transferred to England and brought the bear with him 
Shortly after, however, he was assigned to the Western Front in France, which meant that he had to separate from his new companion. Can't really go into battle with a little bear. Yeah, but what a story that would be. A <laughs> yeah. man riding in on his pet bear to battle. Pretty That's pretty good. cool. Yeah. So he decided that he would give her to the London Zoo to just watch over. He figured the war would end in a couple of months. And when it ended... Everybody did. Yeah. When it ended, he would just pick her up and they'd go back home to Canada. Um, as we know, that didn't happen. They both kind of had their own separate adventure during World War One. The Lieutenant Harry Colborn lived an exciting little... I guess had an exciting experience while fighting. He nearly was hit by an exploding shell. Also saved countless horses, which were critical to their like militia yeah. team. And he, he loves animals. Yeah, I mean, he he was like the a military vet essentially. Yeah. So he would treat the horses for disease and then help heal wounds from like shrapnel and bullets and wow. stuff. So sounds like this guy inspired the story for Winnie the Pooh, War Horse. And was it Pim- Pendleton, the little bear? Paddington? Paddington. <laughs> oh, close. Probably not. Just this one. But um, every time he got leave, he would go visit his little bear, who was doing just fine in the zoo. Although full grown at this point, the zookeeper said that Winnie was the kindest, most gentle bear. Kids were even allowed to ride her and feed her out of their hands. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. When the war ended four years later... Harry knew he couldn't take his beloved friend home, said goodbye, and returned to Winnipeg, working for the Department of Agriculture, and eventually opened an animal hospital. Very cool. Alright, so back to the original story. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. The stuffed animal. He tells these stories to his son, but finally, on Christmas Eve of 1925, in the London Evening News... He publishes his first short story, The Wrong Sort of Bees, introducing the world, well, I guess more like London, to the character of Winnie the Pooh. All of these little short stories were accompanied by Ernest H. Shepard's monochromatic pencil illustrations. He kind of gave, if you look at the bear and you look at the character. I believe I've seen a picture. And it's like a regular teddy bear of yeah. the time. It, yeah, it's not similar. So the the look of Winnie the Pooh is the, like the brainchild of this shepherd guy. Yeah. Who, I'm sure the story played a big part in it, but I think the drawings really were a huge draw. Yeah. Because it's a very cute little bear mm-hmm. wearing a little t-shirt. Yeah, and he actually based the look of Winnie the Pooh on his own son's little bear named Growler. Oh, that's pretty good, too. Yeah. Do you remember when we saw that little puppy named Grizzly? Or Grizz? Mm-hmm. At that gas station? Yeah, and we, we just kind of hu- Yeah, we just kind of hung out with him until the owner just showed up. Yeah. Basically, there was a dog, like, running through this busy intersection, so we pulled over and, and got it. He was so friendly. Yeah, he was so just... Having a great time. Ever. Yeah, he really was. And uh, this guy was like, oh, yeah, that's my dog. I was like, well, what's his name? And then it was obviously his dog, but I didn't want some random dude to yeah. see that dog. To be fair, the dog was happy to see him. He was happy to see anybody, though. That is true. <laughs> In 1926, Winnie the Pooh, like the story collection of Winnie the Pooh, was published. And it went, it was a worldwide phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah, I, know. I also got that vibe from that 
what I just said. <laughs> it was a huge hit at home and abroad. The original English version sold 32,000 copies, and in the United States sold 150,000 copies by the end of the year. Wow. That's like Harry Potter like success. Levels. Yeah. Like kind of unheard of at the time. So obviously this is very exciting for the family, but unfortunately this led to Billy being bullied for a lot of his childhood. Not Billy Moon. Billy Moon. Is that maybe why he changed his name? Because his <laughs> real name became famous as a character? The way that I understood it is like, he just always went by Billy Moon. It happened before. Yeah. Um, and they would like pose for like pictures. There's a lot of like pictures of, of Billy Moon with Winnie the Pooh and he would go on like tours and readings and stuff with his dad. So the Winnie the Pooh series ended after only four books. And the last one was called The House at Pooh Corner. When Billy grows up, again, he'd been bullied. So he's like, I'm going to join the war, become a man, and like not be bullied. <laughs> Unfortunately, he failed his medical examination. But he asked his father, who was very famous, to like influence the people yeah. in charge. And he was commissioned in 1942. And he served in Iraq with the Royal Engineers. Um, he was also in Italy. Uh, unfortunately, he contracted malaria, took shrapnel to his head. That really upset his father, who then became a pacifist, even though he was like a veteran in, in himself. A yeah. Himself. But I just thought it was interesting. It took his son being injured for yeah. that to happen. And this is just kind of a fun fact. Since 1987, the original stuffed animals are on display at the New York Public Library. They're almost 100 years old and are in very good shape. Oh, good. And they're very cute. Like, when yeah. you look at them, they just, yeah. Just... Spawn so many great childhood stories. Yeah. So, I know I didn't really talk about the stories, but there's so many. I mean, you have, like, the original four stories, and then you have the Disney adaptations of everything. And then he also wrote poems about it. And you have There was movies. that recent live-action movie with Ewan McGregor. Yeah. And something that was really interesting I found during this is in no other situation are the original stories just as well-known as, like, the Disney version. Yeah. So, like, Frozen is based off of... Like, the Ice Queen or something? Yeah, I think the Snow Queen. Snow Queen. That makes more and sense. by Hans Christian Andersen. No one knows that version. They just know Frozen. Yeah. Same with The Little Mermaid. Same with Snow White. Like, same with all these things. But for whatever reason, Winnie the Pooh, the original, and the Disney one, they work so well together. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh has never stopped being in print. Almost 100 years later, it has never stopped. That is very cool. Yeah. So, that's my liter little literature trivia for you. The little literary lesson. Which artist is synonymous with the resurgent of the glass-blowing art movement. What's his name? Ch Chihuly? Chihuly? Dale Chihuly. Chihuly. Very good. That is what I'm going to talk about. Dale Chihuly and his impact on the glass-blowing medium as a whole. But before I get into that, I want to talk about what or where glass-blowing started and why and who. Italy. No, but we will get there. Okay, great. Yeah. So, to start, natural glass occurs when certain rocks and minerals melt or are fused together from lightning strikes, volcanic eruptions, or meteor strikes. 
Obsidian was used as a tool by many different ancient cultures. So glass. Gotta love it. It's been here. It's been here. Glass blowing. Inflating molten glass with a blowpipe was created by Syrian craftsmen in the first century BC. Using molds, they commercially produced and shipped pots, bowls, and busts of people's heads all across the Roman Empire. Wow, fragile. Yeah. Skip forward a few centuries, Venice becomes the center. The Italian government was so intent on guarding their monopoly that they ordered all glass blowers to move to the island of Murano in 1291. Anyone caught leaving the island could be sentenced to death. Wow. Yeah. Kind of like the, um... The wheel. What did I talk about last week? The loom. The, the power loom. Yeah. Like, they weren't allowed to integrate. Yeah. However, many did leave, smuggled themselves out, and the trade slowly spread. Until Antonio Neri performed the ultimate letting the cat out of the bag move by publishing Lot Vertaria, or however the Italians would pronounce it, or The Art of Glass, outlining in detail all the Venetian trade secrets. Today, a piece of authentic vintage Murano glass from the era is uh, pretty flippin' valuable. I bet. And that is a number you can take to the bank. <laughs> Do you have a number? Nope. Okay. I looked and looked, but they also make Murano glass today, and we were supposed to record in like a few minutes, so mm. I just gave up. Sorry. Near the end of the 17th century, uh, Venice lost their lead. Again, uh, Antonio Neri publishing that book, everybody picked it up, and they went into decline. For centuries after, glass as an art form was put on the back burner, so to speak. We were coming up on the Renaissance and amazing artwork that came big, from that era. And it's all paintings, instrument. glass, and even like statue work kind of was less important. Modern glass blowing did not return to the public eye as an art form until 1970s. A few people contributed to the comeback, but the subject of today's report is a figurehead in the industry, Dale Chahuli. He was born in 1941 and he is best known for his glass-blown, large-scale sculptures. He co-founded the Pilcher Glass School in 1971. We have even been to his museum in Seattle. Yeah. It was pretty cool. It was really cool. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. We even got to see like a live glass-blowing demonstration, mm -hmm. which was fun. While you're in there, it's a very dark museum, and all of the pieces of art have like these amazing lights. Like I don't know if they're under them or on them or, or interlaced throughout, but... They're lit well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to see what he, what you can do with glass. Yeah, I would never think to be able to do anything. Um, I made like two bowls when I was in high school out of glass, and I thought that was very impressive, I guess. And compared to what you know a professional person can do, it is a little ridiculous. <laughs> he also has a lot of stuff at my work. Missouri Botanical Garden. Yep. Very cool. Skipping ahead a little bit. In 1976, Chihuly was in a car accident where he was thrown through the windshield of the car, severely cutting his face and blinding one of his eyes. So if you look up a picture of Dale Chihuly, he has an eye patch. Yeah. it's. I think every artist we've talked about loses their eyesight so far. Every single one. That's what? This is three for three? Mm -hmm. Then, three years later, in 79, he dislocated his shoulder while body surfing. Naturally. Yeah. Uh, so this marked the end of him being directly involved in the glassblowing process, but he formed a team to continue his distinct style. 
So let's talk about that style, his work. He has said, quote, I want people to be overwhelmed with light and color in some way that they've never experienced, end quote. And like I was saying with his museum, absolutely. Mm-hmm. He has made these interesting glass baskets, glass boats, orbs, cylinders. Uh, he has these things called like glass on glass, which are almost like paintings made of glass, colored glass. I feel like I've said glass so much. <laughs> Many, many, many things. But I would say his most fam- he is most famous for his looming sculptures, his monstrous chandeliers, and his real big installations. So I could keep talking about him, but honestly, just look him up. Look up his work or find a piece near where you are. They're all over the world. Yeah. It's amazing how much he did. It like, is, yeah. Like, even at, at my work, there's could like you, a couple yeah. hundred of his pieces, and that's at one location. Could you imagine doing so much doing so much art that you could fill a museum? Yeah. And Plus he, a million other yeah, places. Yeah, and he's done so, like if you go to Venice, his he has stuff everywhere in Venice. Yeah. If you got one nearby, go see it. And if you're in the Pacific Northwest, you're lucky cuz that's where a lot of them are. <laughs> everywhere right by you the look. Space Needle. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At the base of the Space Needle. Yeah, that was one day. Space Needle and then Yeah, it was one ticket. Even. That's true. Yeah, they bundle them. And a little bit more about modern glass blowing, I thought was interesting. Glass blowing ovens reach 2,000 to 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, about 1,000 to 1,300 degrees Celsius. It takes six days for the oven to get to temperature. So if for whatever reason it goes out, the studio has to stop production for the week. Wow. Yeah. While the glass is hot and moves like molasses and can be molded into the desired shape or even cut with shears. Uh, And this molasses movement is kind of what gave Dale his distinct style. He said, like, move with the gravity, move with the glass. Whereas many other people use molds or things, he does everything more or less freehand. Yeah. Colored glass beads are added to give the piece its own color. Any handles on any, like, pots or anything are added through a, you know, glass welding. And when a piece is finished, it is snapped off the end of the pole, the hollow pole, and put into another oven, much less hot, and left for a few days to solidify. So that is Dale. It's kind of a short one. Yeah, mine was short too. Yeah, we need it. We're tired. Yeah. Well, that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's really and cool. And when you think of art, I don't think we think of, like, glass. But yeah. But it is art. Yeah, I didn't want to do paintings. That was my goal, and I looked into sculptures for a long time, and I was like, oh, Dale, like... So we, we've, we've been we there. We know that guy. And I haven't been to many art museums, really, so. Yeah. I think it's funny. In a lot of your reports, you, like, somehow incorporate, like, a science. Or, like, talk about science in some way. I did say the word Fahrenheit and Celsius. Yeah, or just, like, the how it's made or whatever. Yeah, and I like mine... to go to the beginning and the how. Yeah. I love it. That, and... That's what I'm trying... That's the context I'm trying to give here. Yeah, and mine always turns into history. Yeah. Always. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just funny. It is. It's very good. I like that we have a few of these under our belt now, because I feel like we're really getting into... We're, we're seeing patterns emerge, and I think it's interesting. Yeah. At least for us, you know. Listeners probably don't care. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening. To wrap up the episode, we will roll a die to choose our topic for next week. Ooh. Three is... History. Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. History history and geography. Those are my two favorites. Ooh, I like history. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
<laughs> in real life, I like geography, but trying okay. to do a podcast on a topic of geography is hard. If you guys would subscribe and tell a friend, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll send you some Dale Truly art. A picture of, off yeah, the internet. Yeah, pictures for sure. Yeah, we it, can do that. it'll be the first Google result. It'll take a lot longer to get than you just doing it yourself, but... Uh, it's just a way to show our appreciation. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at trivialconpod at gmail.com. C-O-N-P-O-D at gmail.com. See you next week. Yeah. And then it will not be so last minute. <laughs> <laughs>